This is Rainy with Fannie Lou's Children, a podcast by me. It's a nod to my shero, Fannie Lou Hamer, a voting rights and civil rights activist, born in Rural, Mississippi in 1917. I talk to people who work to exact change in their community and who find solutions. Uh, tonight, I'm doing a little research on um, um, the, for this podcast uh, for a couple of episodes uh, for the rest of the week. And just sitting here listening to some music as I do my research, that particular song that was in the intro uh, was by B- Buddy Ace. Uh, the album is The Silver Fox, and the, the name of the song is It's Time to Move On. Um, as I'm doing a little research for uh, a couple podcasts, I ran across, I was pleasantly surprised to run across an article on African-American businesses because although we're working on mental health issues and how we can um, get, you know, some healing for our, you know, for some issues that are going on, you know, in America. Um, in June, for May, in June, we're going to be talking about, um, you know, black business and actually the topic of uh, segregation versus integration, you know, which one of those are best for us. I think we know the answer to that. But um, uh, this article is very interesting because it talks about um, African-American businesses from the onset, from the beginning. Um, Some of this comes from uh, Wikipedia as well as a couple of more sources. So I'm going to be really brief with this. I just want to kind of mention some things um, that, um, some information that we may just need to be refreshed on and also some references, some books and articles that we can uh, read on this. This is just really astounding. You know, our people are just great, our ancestors, you know. And so it starts like this. African-American businesses, also known as black-owned businesses or black businesses, originated in the days of slavery before 1865. Emancipation and civil rights permitted businessmen to operate inside the American legal structure starting in the Reconstruction era from 1863 to 1877 and afterwards. By the 1890s, thousands of small business operations had opened in urban areas. The most rapid growth came in the early 20th century as the increasingly rigid Jim Crow system of segregation moved urban blacks into a community large enough to support a business establishment. The National Negro Business League, promoted by college president Booker T. Washington, the league opened over 600 chapters, reaching every city with a significant black population. African Americans have operated virtually every kind of company, but some of the most prominent black-owned businesses have been insurance companies, 
banks, recording labels, funeral parlors, barbershops, beauty salons, restaurants, soul food restaurants, record stores, and bookstores. By 1920, there were tens of thousands of black businesses. Tens of thousands of black businesses. The great majority of them quite small. The largest were insurance companies. The league had grown so large that it supported numerous offshoots, serving bankers, publishers, lawyers, funeral directors, retailers, and insurance agents. The Great Depression of 1929 to 1939 was a serious blow as cash income fell in the black community because of very high unemployment, and many smaller businesses closed down. During World War II, many employees and owners switched over to high-paying jobs in munitions factories. Black businessmen generally were more conservative elements of their community, but typically did support the civil rights movement. By the 1970s, federal programs to promote minority um, let's see what that is to promote minority business activity provided new funding. Although the opening world of mainstream management and large corporations attracted a great deal of talent. Black entrepreneurs originally based in music and sports diversified to build brand names that made for success in the advertising and media worlds. And then here's some more information here. Black entrepreneurship can be traced back to when African Americans were first forcibly brought to North America in the 17th century. Many African Americans who gained their own freedom out of slavery opened their own businesses, and even some enslaved African Americans were able to operate their own businesses, either as skilled tradespeople or as minor traders and peddlers. Enslaved African Americans operated businesses both with and without their owner's permission. Free blacks, and this happened in 1865, Free blacks facing a generally hostile environment occasionally operated small businesses. That's very important to note. Free blacks facing a generally hostile environment, pretty much what we have today, occasionally operated small businesses. And remember, at this time when blacks were having businesses, we were forced to I mean, we were segregated, okay? Profit-making businesses were created by more free and enslaved African Americans than one might realize from the usual survey of antebellum America. When the opportunity presented itself, it was taken by those men and women, sometimes timidly, sometimes wholeheartedly, and often endorsed by the masters of the enslaved. As a young slave, Lunsford Lane recalls selling a basket of peaches for money he could keep, and very soon, he says, Plans for money-making took the principal possession of my thoughts. In six years, he had amassed $1,000, which was a lot of money back then. It was enough to purchase his freedom. As we read from the narrative of Lunsford Lane. So, look up the narrative of Lunsford Lane, 1842. Shoemaker here. William Brown was born into a free black family in Rhode Island and as a young man faced discrimination and often unethical treatment from whites as he strove to pursue a trading career. In his selection from his Life of William J. J. Brown of Providence, Rhode Island, 
we read his frustrating experiences as a store clerk and apprentice shoemaker. Again, that is um, a selection from the life of William J. Brown of Providence, Rhode Island. Sail, a sailmaker, James Forden, senior, a freeman and grandfather of Charlotte Forden, learned the sailmaking trade after the revolution, bought his employer's business, and later became the wealthiest black man in Philadelphia. In this 1835 article from the White Journal, it's called the Anti-Slavery Record, a white reporter describes his visit to Fortin's sailmaking business. Here's a barber. After being emancipated by his master in 1820, William Johnson became a successful black businessman in Natchez, Mississippi, operating a barber shop, loaning money and acquiring real estate. Here's a merchant, free born in Philadelphia. His name is Mifflin Gibbs, M-I-F-F-L-I-N Gibbs, became a businessman, lawyer, politician, and abolitionist. For several years, he operated a clothing store in San Francisco, which we learn from his autobiography. The autobiography name is Shadow and Light. It was written in 1902. Shadow and Light. Here's a dressmaker. After purchasing her freedom in St. Louis, Elizabeth Keckley moved to Washington, D.C. and became the dressmaker for Mary Todd Lincoln, producing elegant gowns for the Capitol's elite women. Her 1868 autobiography, which is behind the scenes, again, her autobiography is behind the scenes, it displays her ardor and initiative creating her business and her life. Here between 1865 and 1900, emancipation and civil rights permitted businessmen to operate inside the American legal structure starting in the Reconstruction era and afterwards. By the 1890s, thousands of small businesses' operations had opened in urban areas. The South had relatively few cities of any size in 1860, but during the war and afterward, refugees, both black and white, flooded in from rural areas. The growing black population produced a leadership of class of ministers, professionals, and businessmen. These leaders typically made civil rights a high priority. Of course, great majority of blacks in urban America were unskilled or low-skilled blue-collar workers. Here's historian August Meyer. Here's his report. It says, from the 1800s, there was a remarkable development of Negro business, banks and insurance companies, undertakers and retail stores. It occurred at a time when Negro barbers, tailors, caterers, trainmen, blacksmiths, and other artisans were losing their white customers. Depending upon the Negro market, the promoters of the new enterprises naturally upheld the spirit of racial self-help and solidarity. Memphis, Tennessee was the base for Robert Reed Church, a freedman who became the South's first black millionaire. He made his wealth from speculation in city real estate, much of it after Memphis became depopulated after the yellow fever epidemics. He founded the city's first black-owned bank, which was called Solvent Savings Bank and Trust, ensuring that the black community could get loans to establish businesses. 
He was deeply involved in local and national Republican politics and directed patronage to the black community. His son, Robert Reed Church Jr., became a major politician in Memphis. He was a leader of black society and a benefactor in numerous causes. Black communities were undoubtedly negatively affected by the enforcement of racial segregation in cities and urban areas where blacks are, were limited in what residential areas they could occupy. Whether in the South or the North, segregation limited the social, education, and economic process of the varying black communities forced into this racial, racist social practice. However, new economic, anthropological, and census research conducted establishes how black communities in the North during the late 19th century fought against racial segregation by donning new attitudes toward commerce and entrepreneurship. Racial segregation in the North during the late 19th century saw a considerably rise in black entrepreneurship and black owned small business. Okay. Again, racial segregation in the North during the late 19th century saw a considerable rise in black entrepreneurship and black-owned small business within their respective communities. These small business owners were able to take advantage of constraints placed upon the African-American communities and ex exploit a market of untapped black consumers that at the time were not allowed a great deal of purchasing power in white economic markets. This rise in Negro markets as framed by St. Clair Drake and Horace R. Clayton in Black Metropolis occurred in the south side of cities like Chicago where African Americans established a black belt of their own where the number of black owned businesses reached 2,500 by 1937 in south side Chicago alone. And we could go on and on with this, you know, I and mean, it's good reading, it's a lot of reading, but again, this is an article primarily based on um, Wikipedia <clears throat> under African-American businesses. I mean, it's great reading. Um, you know, it's certainly uh, fortifying. It certainly gives you, you know, gives us, some, you know, it's just kind of eye-opening. I mean, you know, we all know what, you know, our ancestors and how, how you know, business-minded they were. And the thing is, you know, segregation forced the growth of the black population. Segregation forced black entrepreneurship. Segregation forced black people, forced actual wealth. So I'm gonna stop right here. Uh, we're gonna continue this conversation on African-American businesses and web and, and, and integration versus segregation. Uh, you know, what is best for us? I'm gonna end this right here. I'll uh, talk to you again tomorrow night when we um, interview a young lady who's a therapist, who's a trained therapist, although she is self-employed and works in her in, in the art field. We're going to talk to her about microaggressions in the black community. See you then.